sure about this? No. <laughs> Mr. Constantine, I'd like to ask you a few questions. I know the circles you travel in, the occult, the exorcisms. Easy there, hero. That's Dragon's Breath. I thought you couldn't get it anymore. Oh, I, uh, <clears throat> I know a guy who knows a guy. I thought that you could at least point me in the right direction. Yeah, okay, sure. Please. What if I told you that God and the devil made a wager for the souls of all mankind? No direct contact with humans, that would be the rule. Just influence, see who would win. Demons stay in hell, angels in heaven. They call it the balance. I need to see what you see. You do this, there's no turning back. You see them, they see you, understand? Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the Film 89 podcast. I'm Hayden Spiral and I'm one of the writers and editors over at film89.co.uk. Today I'm joined by a close friend and huge supporter of the site who we've had on the podcast many times, but someone who I personally have not yet had the pleasure to join myself. He's featured in episodes discussing a range of topics from Apocalypse Now to Star Trek The Motion Picture and most recently Michael Mann's Manhunter. Given our shared passion, which we will get into uh, during the episode, it's been a long time coming. Mr. John Arminio, welcome back to the podcast. Ah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah, yeah. Very exciting stuff. Now, I guess to start with, as every sort of podcast at the moment probably needs to address, how are things on your end over in the United States, given the situation? Uh, Well, uh, being the United States, we have our fair share of crazy people <laughs> being very irresponsible and endangering the lives of others and just being general assholes so that's great yeah um, there's a lot of craziness around that at the moment it's it's just bizarre yeah fortunately uh our governor is a little more even keeled when it comes to that kind of stuff so he's setting some certain guidelines uh, I, I live in pennsylvania yeah that seem more logical like so each county is given its own like schedule for uh, reopening um, but you know places like florida and maryland are do are being much more loose in how they're letting things start you know you know like florida declared wwe an essential business like, <laughs> i love wrestling as much as the ne- next guy but come on yeah, well, yeah, it's a little, little bit more tame here in Australia. So they've sort of they've started to slowly loosen restrictions. So I'm in Melbourne, Victoria. If you don't know, it's down in the south, southern east part of the country. I think we've been a little less lenient here. Our, our um, government's been a little less lenient down here. Um, yeah, so they've sort of started to ease things back. Obviously, we haven't been hit nearly as hard as you guys, I guess, for a variety of reasons. Our economy, as with everyone's, is is pretty shattered. But otherwise, in terms of actual damage caused by the disease itself, we've we've been pretty, um, pretty vigilant, I think. 
Yeah, uh, my brother actually goes to uh, Monash University in uh, Melbourne. All right. Yeah, so you know he you know took this like across the globe journey to go to a, a university, and now he's you know spending most of the semester doing courses online. So he's not too happy about that. Yeah, yeah. I um, I mean, I'm haven't traveled to study like that, but I'm currently in my first year back at uni after five years, and it's it's sort of the same deal. It's been forced yeah. online, and it's been an adjustment, and in some ways not ideal, but in other ways, those of us that are studying are kind of a bit well off considering we actually have something to occupy ourselves with while we're stuck indoors. Yeah. And, you know, both of us aren't nurses or, or other essential workers that are, have to like pull 12 hour shifts healing uh, people with COVID. So I count myself lucky in, in, in a pandemic, at least at this point. Yeah. Um, and I know you and Steve discussed in your Field of Dreams episode a little bit about how your your particular business has been a hit. Um, is there any any new developments on that front? Uh, yeah, Diamond is uh, the distributing company that takes comics from the publisher and distributes them to comic book stores. They are uh, distributing new comics again on May twentieth, so that'll be fun. So we're still going to be doing like curbside pickup or mail order. No customers in the stores. Practicing social distancing. We're going to be wearing masks. Uh, that kind of thing. So it'll be interesting for the first few weeks. We're still open, but I'm glad to be, you know, getting a new product in. Yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. I get to I get to tell people the details of what happened in the latest Batman issue again. Yeah, brilliant. Just to clarify on that, it uh, it's May 15 here in Australia, at least. Is it is it the 14th still where you are? Yes, it is the 14th. Yeah. Oh um, yeah, yeah. So, so definitely, will uh, this this will all be in the past uh, by the time this comes out. It's looking up for you when people are tuning in, I guess. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah, I hope so too. And very relevant to today's topic, but uh, so Vertigo Comics title Sweet Tooth has recently picked up by Netflix. I know you mentioned it's one of your few sort of gaps in your Vertigo knowledge, but uh, Jeff Lemire is is a pretty big feature in your. Uh, on your bookshelf, yeah. Oh yeah, I I love everything uh, Jeff Lemire has written. He had this graphic novel Roughneck that came out a couple years ago. That was fantastic. Um, his Exodus County is amazing. Underwater Welder is great, but Sweet Tooth is just one of those things that has just so far uh, escaped my grasp. But I yeah. will be correcting that very soon, and I'm really looking forward to the the, the series with Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, um, I mean the. This, the series itself, uh, Sweet Tooth, is, is kind of relevant to the current situation. It, for those who don't know, it's sort of about a, um, a post-apocalyptic uh, fallout from a pandemic. <laughs> but in this one, it's sort of uh, humans dying off and there are these part human, part animal hybrids that are sort of thriving in the new world. So the series is mostly about figuring out, you know, getting to the bottom of that whole thing. Um, Scott Robert Downey Jr. and his partner, as uh, producers on the show, I believe. And I did see that James Brolin has been cast as the narrator. So a few big names attached. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's there's been several things that have been optioned by Jeff Lemire that I, I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but he sort of has one of those sweet creator deals where almost everything he creates gets optioned, whether it gets turned out into a uh, series or not. It's a sweet deal for him. And, and I'm excited because, hey, one of my favorite creators, you know, has has this extra income. Um, and if anybody out there loves like classic Universal Monsters, he has this. The thing that introduced me to him 
was this graphic novel called The Nobody, which is a really fascinating look at uh, The Invisible Man. So it's sort of what if The Invisible Man held up in a remote, small Canadian town and tried to cure himself of, of his invisibleness. And it's a really fascinating meditation on loneliness. And it's done this very stark, cold blue color palette uh, with his very um, kind of idiosyncratic style. And it's just amazing. I know it was out of print for a while, but it keeps coming back and then going out of print and coming back. But if you can find it, uh, I highly recommend The Nobody. Yeah, that's that's one of the gaps in my um, Jeff Lemire uh, history. I haven't read that. I know of it. And um, you've sold it pretty well just then. So I'm going to have to seek it out. But hopefully Lemire has a little bit more luck than Brian K. Vaughan. I know that he's, uh, you know, the writer behind Saga and Why the Last Man, which is supposedly coming to FX this year as a TV adaptation. But he's had no luck whatsoever over the years getting his work to screen. Yeah, yeah that's been in development hell uh, for years. Mm. Same thing, really great series like uh, Lock and Key, or, or which actually did come out on Netflix, but that was in development for forever. But relevant to our discussion, Sandman has been in and out of production for the better part of 20 years. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I mean, the those sort of late 80s to 90s, uh, particularly Vertigo series, you know, there has been a lot of push over the years to try and get those to screen, but they sort of get pushed to the wayside a little bit for the sake of you know, a lot of superhero adaptations. And it's really nice to hear that a lot of them seem to finally be, that there seems to be a little bit of a mainstream demand for them now. I know the Sandman is supposedly coming to Netflix, I believe at some point. Again, who knows at this point with a lot of those, it's just a wait and see sort of deal. I don't know if you saw the the cast list for the um, Sandman Audible drama was recently released. And it's uh, pretty amazing. It's got uh, James McAvoy, Andy Serkis, uh, Samantha Morton. It looks pretty perfect. And so I, the Sandman is my favorite comic book of all time, if I had to pick one. And it's something that I've gone back to uh, more times than any other comic. It's something that's really brought a lot of like uh, a fulfillment and inspiration to me personally. Um, it's something that I've been able to connect with, with one of my best friends on a really profound way and it, it's something that really means a lot to me and i don't know if if i want uh, a netflix or a movie adaptation like i just don't know if i'll be able to handle it and so rather than just like bitch about how it's not the comic uh, i i would probably best advise to just not see it but an audible drama i think i would be really into especially with with a cat that good yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, I mean, I'm probably in the same boat, The Sandman. If I had to pick one, it's probably the standout comic that I will go back to for the rest of my life. It's sort of at the center of, you know, that really legendary sort of era um, when Vertigo Comics was was founded. I guess it's a series around which all these other really classic titles orbit a little bit. And there seemed to be a lot of sort of, there's, there was like a very biblical theological theme around a lot of them, but they, they were also very cynical. I don't know if you feel the same way about a lot of those titles. Um, yeah, I definitely feel that way about a Constantine and about uh, Swamp Thing. Mm. But I, I don't know if I feel that way about Sandman. Sandman is a very remote and in a lot of ways cynical character, but I think a lot of those stories are about him, you know, finding a connection to humanity, even if it's not humanity in himself. There's that great story of him going to a bar once every century and meeting a man who's discovered how to not die. And just by this once a century meeting, he finds out that he has a friend or or that the great story with uh, Element Girl, who is kind of sheltered 
to death by by death herself or the one um one of the most famous stories from the Sandman run where uh Sandman inspires Shakespeare to write a Midsummer Night's Dream and so it's this wonderful meeting of the endless the kingdom of fairy and then humanity and so I think there's these really beautiful sort of uplifting stories along with all the journeys into hell and the almost apocalypses that occur in that series yeah Neil Gaiman sort of writes Sandman as this just giant love letter to literature itself and it's almost like a a really beautiful starting point for anyone who wants to explore literature all the way back and it can really take you to finding new things that you may never have heard of just purely by Gaiman homaging them or referencing them and you know Shakespeare is obviously a, a really a really obvious example you got series like uh like preacher which is probably the most religiously cynical book you'll ever read yeah. and yeah. Yeah, yeah that is a cynical as hell series definitely <laughs> but i guess all of this is a bit of a preamble to get to the topic today which is relevant and that is that we're going to discuss 2005's constantine which you yourself you're a big fan of i believe going yes. by your facebook post a few days back i love this movie it's it incredibly not uh the constantine from the book uh, they make a lot of changes to the story to the character um but in a lot of ways it does capture the essence of the character in how he's so upfront with his cynicism and his nihilism but at the same time he goes out of his way to help people and he has this innate empathy for everyone around him like he he will risk his immortal soul to help these people that he just met and so you know he might monologue about how it's all you know it's all shit it all doesn't matter but then you know he'll he'll risk everything to to help a stranger or especially his friends and so in a lot of ways he's like like russ cole from true detective who he ta- he rants and rants about being an, a nihilist uh but at the end of the day he's the only person who actually risks anything to save uh the victims in that series and so I, I kind of think about uh, Constantine in the same way. Yeah, I mean, I love that you referenced True Detective. I literally recently finished rewatching that first season. And that's a really apt comparison as well. I guess Constantine's not really... You could probably see him as an anti-hero if you wanted, but he, he kind of isn't that. He's just a very rough around the edges hero. Like you say, he, he does care about people, but he sort of hides it behind this... He puts up a wall a little bit, but at the end of the day, he sort of does things for other people. Although the film kind of does um, contradict that a little bit. I guess the whole film is about him trying to ascend to heaven when he dies, uh, something which he's been prohibited from due to the fact that he tried to kill himself as a child. So I, I don't know, like, how do you think, do you feel like it contradicts itself as a film? Or do you think that's more of a comment on what the script itself is saying about about the pedantic nature of how the gods are actually running things in the film's world. Yeah, I do think it's it's definitely a comment on straight ahead Christianity or, or Catholicism because it's clear that Rachel Weisz's character, Angela, and her twin sister, Isabel, like they're both good people, but because Isabel is a suicide, she's in hell. And it's clear that you know she was in great despair or being influenced by demons or the son of the devil himself so she certainly does not deserve to spend a single moment in hell and so it's up to people like constantine mortals to try and subvert this incredibly rigid incredibly pedantic set of rules and and systems that have been set up billions of years ago 
uh, by the devil and God and between angels and demons, it's ridiculous. And, you know, there's that wonderful scene between um, Constantine and Gabriel where he's just kind of ranting against, uh, you know, all, all these this nonsense that has been set up, you know, before humans were even primordial, primordial ooze on Earth. That's a really, are you talking about the first scene that Constantine and Gabriel share together, which is quite early in the film? Yeah, 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 well, in in the church by the fireplace. Yeah, yeah, that's a wonderful scene, actually. Um, One of many really, really quality scenes. I've watched the film a few times over the past week, and we can sort of gripe and complain about the fact that, yeah, on the surface, it is quite a um, departure from the character himself, which which I guess is probably the major complaint that maybe may, uh, big fans of the character would have. I mean, Keanu Reeves certainly doesn't, you know, just... In terms of looks, he just doesn't look the character at all. You know, you sort of imagine Constantine and the comics imagine him as this really sort of, you know, he's, he's, he's not he's not exactly an attractive guy. He's quite rugged and he's quite, um you know, he's been smoking for his entire life and he looks it. The, the comics don't beat around that. But in, in this film, it, it did take me a bit of an adjustment to see this guy who smokes like he's trying to make a point of the fact that he smokes and yeah yeah exactly i mean keanu reeves is not an unattractive man and he, there's almost this really polished look about the characters themselves that that contrasts with the look of the world and that for me at least took a little bit of getting used to i'm not sure if it can be leveled as a complaint about the film itself but it's certainly a stylistic choice that that takes yeah. a bit of getting used to I do like towards the end of the film, it's definitely clear that he's getting sicker and sicker and he gets this pale, sallow look to his face, you know, dark circles in his eyes as you can tell the cancer is taking hold of him. And so I appreciate that. The, the surface changes to, you know, the look of the character and his nationality. A lot of that actually comes from the writer, Kevin Broadbent, who is English and who loves the character. Um, but this project started in the late 90s at least for for him and it was sort of his dream project but he was so desperate to get attention from the studios that he made changes to the character to make him American, to try and get it made in Hollywood. And so I think sometimes you're so close to a project that you want to make sacrifices just to like make it happen. So I just found that, you know, real fascinating that somebody's dream project, they were just like, yeah, just whatever it takes to get it made. Yeah, definitely. It seems that, um, and again, I'm not trying to level it as complaints. I'm not trying to phrase it as complaint, but it does seem that they try to sort of dumb the character down a little bit. You know, he's, <laughs> he's, basically described as a straight-up exorcist, which I think isn't all that accurate to the character, but it gets it gets the point across, I think, um, to a broad audience. Yeah, and especially because part of the origin story of Constantine is a failed exorcism, where he sort of lost a young girl's soul to hell when he, it was kind of his responsibility to save her because he was playing with forces that he, that he couldn't handle. So I guess if you were to try and give the elevator pitch for Constantine you, to somebody who had no idea what he was, you might use the word exorcist, you know, like an unordained exorcist or something. But a, a lot of the reason why... I love the movie is that it is totally separate from my love of the character and in the comics, because I think especially in the last you know decade or so, it feels like the comic book Batman has been competing with the Christopher Nolan Batman. And part of the reason why people were hesitant to accept Ben Affleck as Batman is because it's in the shadow of the Christopher Nolan Batman. And for someone who loves comics, that's really frustrating because it's like the comic book stories um, can't exist on their own. And 
as amazing as Christopher Reeve is in the role of Superman, I think the comic book character has been in competition with that image from the films, you know, since the 70s. But, you know, nobody's looking to this movie for inspiration for the comics. It can just exist on its own and I can love it and then I could love the Vertigo books or I can love the character now all on their own merits. Yeah, you wonder whether that comes back to the fact that maybe, you know, if we, if we throw ourselves back into 2005 and maybe we're, a, we're an audience member that's not familiar with the character, it doesn't seem all that clear that it even is a comic book movie at the time, especially when they're not as, <clears throat> as big as they are now to begin with. So I think maybe that lack of exposure for the character of John Constantine helps to be able to distance it from... Yep from the comic but i definitely agree with you I, th I think comics and movies need to be able to to live apart i'm certainly i'm certainly not watching a movie like constantine and thinking no it's just not accurate enough i can't enjoy this that said i personally really enjoyed a lot of the callbacks to garth ennis's dangerous habits storyline which which this film and Broadman clearly wanted to use that as sort of a um, sort of his building blocks for what he wanted to do on the screen because that storyline too is about you know Constantine realizing or learning that he has cancer, which is almost just morbidly hilarious because of the this whole magical life that he leads and how he's dealing with demons and all this crazy stuff but it's at the end of the day it's cancer that's gonna that's gonna yeah. bring him down there are scenes that are pretty much taken panel for panel from from that storyline like the gabriel scene that we mentioned before that's almost identical to a scene in issue i want to say issue 43 of hellblazer yeah yeah and there's there's a couple other like the the view of the sink as he's coughing up blood and also that that great shot of um of satan coming down and like ooze dripping from his feet that, that's all taken uh straight from that story but the uh, the actual dangerous habit story it, it's pretty different you know it, it carries over the kind of hell triumvirate that was uh, originated in uh, neil gaiman's sandman so there's actually three devils uh, in the comic that Constantine has to try and sell his soul to. So the resolution is a little bit different. And, you know, m most of the stuff, most of the plot from the 2005 film is, is invented for the film itself. It is always nice when you can see like, oh, this is where that came from. You can, when you can see the inspiration on screen, I think that that is always a, a nice bonus. And I think that um, the point about the, the the three, I guess, rulers of hell compared to just the one in this film is is another example of of the movie. Just it, it has to exist on its own. You know, it's not part of a of a universe the same way that Hellblazer was. Satan himself, who's who is Lucifer in the film, he gets referred to as both Satan and Lucifer. I think that that almost could create a bit of confusion with the general population who may not be familiar with Satan being known as Lucifer, I guess, in the comic. Because you sort of, if you detach yourself from a comic book reading background and you watch the scenes where they're referring to Satan, but then at the end, Constantine addresses him as Lucifer, you, you might sort of double take a little bit. I don't think it's enough to, to break the film or anything like that, but it definitely is an example of the fact that this is an adaptation of something with a huge amount of backstory and history and trying to sort of pull that in and rein it into a two-hour movie that doesn't need any 
other justification, I guess. Yeah, there's so much lore that you could stuff into this film. And and that is a bit of a, a problem with adapting anything with, you know, a world this rich. But I do love the moment between Satan and Gabriel, where Gabriel addresses Satan, like son of perdition, little horn, most unclean. Mm. And then Satan says, I do miss the old names. Um, <laughs> yet. Peter Stormare as the devil, I think, is my favorite on-screen Satan. He's just so slimy. He's just redolent with malevolence. And he, he, he takes pleasure in every bit of pain that he's about to enact on both Gabriel and Constantine. The moment when he thinks he's dragging Constantine to hell and he starts whistling, like, it's just so perfect. It's a lot of fun to see him as Lord, the Lord of Darkness. That entire, I mean, that performance by Peter Stormare, it's easily my favorite part of the film. His performance is easily my favorite performance in the film. If I was to try and convince someone to watch this movie, I'd almost be tempted to send them that scene off YouTube, despite the fact that it's the climax and it would entirely spoil the whole thing. But it's just such a brilliant performance. It's so menacing and so creepy it's almost the perfect payoff to the film i thought as you mentioned him coming down from the ceiling and the and the goo and then him removing the cancer from constantine's body and and holding it in his hands as he's telling constantine that you know he's, he's going to prove that he deserves to to be in hell forever just the whole thing is just riveting you can't take your eyes off the yeah. screen no matter how many times you've seen it and it's a huge risk too for a, a, a movie to introduce a new character at the climax and somebody that going into it everybody knows you know who the devil is and so we all have our own expectations of what that character should be and what he's supposed to represent and so the movie like really hinges on the fact that peter stormeo is, is able to is able to sell himself as a devil and that the movie is able to sell him you know as this menace and as somebody that could possibly be tricked by constantine and so if any of that stuff doesn't work the movie just kind of like ends with a fart and luckily it does come together in the end and it's kind of a, a joy to watch I'd, I'd almost want to say that it hinges on that performance because if it was a lesser performance it it, it might have just completely fallen apart you know and i i don't want to compare this particular film to something like apocalypse now because they don't really belong in the same category but his appearance at the end of the film isn't unlike those um, those roles, you know, like Marlon Brando at the end of Apocalypse Now. It's that character that, that appears, you know, towards the end of the film and everything hinges on, on that reveal. There isn't a build-up to that, and I think that's why Gabrielle ends up having to be the major antagonist of Constantine because without that, the film will probably just have no sort of sense of cohesiveness I think if they just sort of threw Lucifer in towards the end. Do you, do you feel like, and I know we're, we're sort of going all over the place in terms of discussing the film, but it's been out for, what, 15 years now. I don't think there's any risk of, of avoiding spoilers or any risk that anyone's going to be upset by that. But do you think that the ending of the film works in terms of the fact that Constantine himself doesn't play a huge role, at least actively, in the resolution. He's very much basically dying and sitting against the wall for the whole time. He plays a role, he plays a major role, but he's so uninvolved in a purely physical sense. Do you think that it works despite that? I mean, for me it does, because I think that's pretty 
you know, in keeping with the character, uh, his history in comics, you know, the story arc that I most recently read by Jamie Delano, uh, the fear machine, you know, spoiler alert for, you know, a, a 25 year old comic. Um, <laughs> it, it, it resolves itself by him uniting three much more powerful magical women and then sort of unleashing this like feminine dragon to compete with this malevolent sort of male force dragon. So the only his only role in that story was to make sure that these more powerful people were able to come together. And I think he serves a, a similar function here in that he's able to bring Satan's attention to uh, the fact that his Satan's son and Gabriel are sort of conspiring to bring about the apocalypse, and then. Satan can enact the, the sort of a Godzilla let them fight scenario, putting his enemies ag against each other through trickery. And because he's playing with forces so beyond his control that that's kind of all he can do. Like he's not as powerful as Doctor Strange. He's somebody that can cast a spell that takes him 20 minutes and, and hope he, he doesn't get dragged down to hell with, with his enemies. Yeah, and I think that the film definitely takes those cues from those Vertigo comics of the 90s because a lot of the conflicts in those are very sort of abstract, ideological, often intellectual, rather than action-heavy, which is something that people maybe associate a lot with comics is that they're very action heavy but a lot of those stories they they, they don't rely on that they often they often rely on the character the character in question's wit or ability to to overcome a villain that physically would just trump them any day of the week but so they have to actually think it through and i think that is a sign of a really smart and really impressive writing for people that are able to write around those physical restraints and find a better way to resolve the conflict itself. And in a lot of the early uh, Constantine stories, you know, they're explicitly political. You know, There's a lot of comments about the AIDS crisis, a lot of comments about Thatcherism in, in England, and a lot of comments about like extreme right and neo-Nazis kind of coming back in, in um, especially in London. And so the characters who do take things to a physical action-oriented realm are you know like the dullards the idiots the physically abusive and corrupt cops the people that Constantine really looks down on and so it's almost like his character is anathema to physical action and it's it's all intellectual because really yeah he's habitually destroying his body you know, 30 times a day when he smokes a cigarette. And so all he kind of has to work with is, is his mind. Yeah. It's interesting because a lot of, I think a huge part of Vertigo's success was that I think the editor at the time at DC was Karen Berger. Um, and yeah. she was sort of the shepherd behind the whole Vertigo line. And, and she brought a lot of English writers across to American comics because she personally thought that they were doing things that writers in America weren't weren't so much doing. So she brought, you know, Neil Gaiman, um, Alan Moore, who actually invented the character of Constantine. Like uh, Mike Carey and Peter Milligan. Yeah, so it's, I mean, obviously the, the film that we're discussing couldn't, couldn't go into the the social and political aspects that the, the character in his early days could it's just not feasible but do you think that the transition into making him an, an american character do you think it loses anything by that or do you think that the that it's sort of 
irrelevant when it comes to the film itself. I do think you lose something because a lot of Constantine's day-to-day involves English pub culture and, and, you know, going from, you know, London to, like, Stonehenge and performing spells that involve, like, druidic rites and, and the fact that, you know, Chaz is a London cabbie and there's things that are inherently English about the character more than just his accent but at the same time you know this is this is one of the last times that you could smoke on screen and i think <laughs> smoking is is just something that you can't have a constantine that doesn't swear and doesn't smoke and so as good as Matt Reeves is, you know, when he does the voice for Constantine in the DC animated films or when he had the Constantine series or when he, he guests on other, you know, the CW shows, a non-smoking Constantine, I think, is less Constantine than an American Constantine because he's self-destructive just by breathing. And I think mm-hmm. you need that element of the character to, to, have, to have any sort of semblance to who he is in the comics. I mean, does the character, I haven't read any recent Constantine in comics like Justice League Dark. Does he, is he still allowed to smoke in on the page? Yeah, he definitely does still smoke on the page and, and he does smoke in the most recent series uh, written by Sy Spurrier. Yeah, yeah. Because um, there's often a lot of pushback these days that sometimes these things would glorify smoking, which is part of why it's so unaccepted on on the screen and it, you know Keanu Reeves maybe makes it look kind of cool but <laughs> but the, it's pretty damn clear that that it's it's not being glorified and I I think that it's yeah I think you're absolutely right that you lose far more by cutting some of those aspects of the character away rather than just his nationality I think this film uses L.A. in a really interesting way because he he goes from performing an exorcism in a very poor Filipino apartment. It seems like the whole building is kind of occupied by this Filipino family, then has to go to a very affluent Catholic church in which, you know, there's a white priest and, and, you know, Gabriel is is white. And so it, it really gets across the very multi-ethnic, multi-class nature of Los Angeles uh, that is really interesting. And and I'm really glad the film used those elements of the city. So it didn't just say, okay, we're in Los Angeles now. It it used Los Angeles to its advantage. And I think Papa Midnight's Bar really comes to life because of that. Like, goddamn, Jamon Hansu is so perfect as Papa Midnight. Um, I think he's definitely the one element that comes directly from the comics and he's absolutely a home run in that role definitely i think that the for me the setting it it feels so otherworldly in a way that it obviously feels like a a city on planet earth otherwise the scenes in hell wouldn't work but because of how it is filmed and and i'm not as familiar with i'm not familiar at all with los angeles yeah the, the the fact that it was filmed and set in america didn't play any role in my mind because it's filmed in such a gritty you know almost exaggerated way that it just feels like this whole other place in and of itself almost like it's the only kind of place that john constantine could exist because it's so grimy and and hazy and and it just attracts that kind of personality to it it's somehow a desert but it's also always raining yeah like it's the worst of all possible weather all at the same time it sort of reminds me of another 2005 comic book movie, at least the, the ending of it, and that's Batman Begins, you know, the, the the very orange sort of, it's almost like this gritty, grimy, industrial sort of filter hangs over the city and and just makes it look that much dirtier. 
What did you think of the supporting cast, more specifically the supporting characters? You mentioned Papa Midnight and he's, yeah, he's, he's such an enjoyable part of the film. But what about, you know, Shia LaBeouf as Chaz, which is just an enormous departure from the comic. Um, Tilda Swinton, of course, is is wonderful. But some of those other supporting characters that, that Constantine regards as his sort of inner circle. What, how did you, how do you feel about those? I actually like the LaBeouf in this film. I think he's just eager enough uh, not to be annoying. I like that moment towards the end when um, Constantine punches that guard in the face, and and, and he's <laughs> and after, after being you know rejected by the by the guard early in the film, he he leans over into and like whispers like, "Oh, what now, bitch?" Yeah, he just plays it straight enough that it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but of course he he doesn't like yell it loudly and he scampers right real quick because you know he's still in danger um and i and i love you know towards the end he's able to like you know kind of pull himself up by his bootstraps and you know help out with an exorcism and you know he's basically sacrifices himself to save constantine and so we get just enough of him to get the relationship between constantine and this version of Chaz. And we see that Constantine has empathy for him and, and actually cares about him. Uh, but unfortunately, like a lot of the supporting cast around Constantine, he meets a very grisly end. He almost disappears for too long in the sort of in the middle of the film. He, he kind yeah. of when he returns, it's almost like, oh, yeah, he still exists in this film. He's seen in the in the was it a kitchen um, where he's sort of getting ready and he and he has that that moment that sort of triumphant little monologue where it's clear that he has been paying attention this whole time that he's basically been Constantine's driver and you know he he earns the respect of Papa Midnight and proves that you know he's he's not just driving around he actually has a purpose and I think that yeah that then gets paid off really well by him playing a role in saving Angela before as you say he meets his grizzly and personally I didn't feel like I cared when any of Constantine's friends died i mean when Chaz died himself i i, I sort of did a double take because i didn't actually realize he died and it and then i realized it didn't really have an impact on me maybe they didn't need to it didn't seem to affect constantine that much although he is a very insular sort of he doesn't wear his emotions on his sleeve of course but yeah so a lot of those deaths like the priest as well his his death was important to the plot but not necessarily on an emotional level yeah un- unfortunately i think Almost all of those characters, so the, the priest, that's Father Hennessy, uh, Beeman, who's Constantine's kind of like armorer, but he's basically his cue, and Chaz. The movie could have been almost the exact same movie if they didn't die, but we just needed to see how powerful and how evil Mammon was becoming. So it, was it worth it to sacrifice those characters and have them experience such horror at, at the end for that? I don't really know. I think... Uh, it was Beeman's death that finally convinced Papa Midnight to help Constantine. So I guess in that way, it's necessary. But we see Papa Midnight is, at his soul, a good guy. So I don't know if he really needed to know that Beeman was killed to point Constantine in the right direction. And obviously, there's Angela who plays, you know, the secondary role in the film. And I think that she, the the dynamic between um, her and Constantine is actually really, really good. I was kind of worried that it was <laughs> just going to be, you know, a romantic plot that felt like it was a romantic plot just for the sake of it. I, I, I was glad that it kept sort of, it was almost like self-aware of the fact that 
maybe that's what people might have been expecting because it keeps having these scenes where it looks like they're gonna kiss but Constantine's just kind of doing his thing and being weird and (laughs) and, um and I mean at the end they sort of do tease a bit of a romance but again it's not the point and it's it's maybe not somewhere that the film's going which I really appreciated um and just the banter between the two like the very first interaction they have when Constantine gets in the elevator and she says you're going down and he says I hope not or something like that just some really fun little lines that play into the the theme of the film itself actually that is one of my favorite lines in the movie because yeah she says going down and he says not if I can help it and closes (laughs) the door but guess what that's foreshadowing because Constantine is going to do everything in his power to prevent her from going to hell. Hmm. And it's a line where he's being just an asshole. So yeah. it works on two levels. Um, but yeah, I, my favorite uh, relationships with Constantine in the comics is probably with Zatanna, who like they used to be in a relationship. But now that Zatanna is like an adult She's too smart to get in a relationship with Constantine. So in that way, it's a lot more fun when those two characters interact. They obviously have a lot of affection for one another, but there's this kind of like they never well again sort of energy to them. And I think I get the same vibe between Angela and Constantine is that at least for right now, both characters know that it would be very bad if they got together. There's definitely an attraction there, but it's just much more interesting to see them not get together. Yeah, she's a li- Angela herself is a little bit. She seems a bit more uh, aloof to that. Um, I mean, I guess she probably has to get to know him a little better. And also, she's she, she's traumatized by the death of her twin sister. Yeah, there is that too. <laughs> there are moments in the script where it wants to to toy with us a little bit, but it, it maybe doesn't commit to them. There's the the early part where we see Isabel's death in Angela's dream. And it's clear that obviously they're identical. So it sort of makes you think, I mean, has she had a premonition? And then she goes and sees the body and it has this kind of like, is this a, a magical thing? Is she seeing her own dead body? Only for it to, to very quickly get rid of any implication of that. I find that those moments were fun, but I felt like they almost teased something more interesting than maybe what we got at times. That's Maybe that's just me. I don't know if... I think for, for me... Um, drawing lines between uh, Angela and actual um, biblical figures uh, makes that sort of stuff interesting because she makes like th- three big denials in the course of the movie. Like she she denies that Isabel killed herself, but before you know finally realizing it, uh, she denies that she and Isabel had a way for communicating, like like secret methods of communication. And then she denies that she ever saw anything mm, or, yeah, had, true. or had like visions like Isabel did. And so the, having one of your major characters in a very religiously themed movie make three very big denials in the course of the film makes me think of, you know, Peter, uh, the, the most, you know, uh, famous disciple of Jesus. And not that Constantine is like Jesus, but his uh, initials are JC. Hmm. So for me, that dynamic does actually work. And again, we, we can go back to the interactions that they have, not only when she's you know denying all these things, it, it's almost like Constantine just sees right through it or which goes back to maybe he is in this really strange um, offbeat ways in his 
sort of envisioned in an ideological way as as kind of a godlike being because it's almost like nothing gets past him you know and and at the end of the day she's only lying to herself in that sense because she's not convincing anybody and then he 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 obviously has all these experiences that the film alludes to that i really like and it it cuts back to that cynicism you know when they're having conversations and he's he's sort of revealing things to her and letting her see behind the curtain that he's been seeing behind for, for years and years and there are lines like when they're at the cafe and he um you know he says god's a kid with an ant farm he's not planning anything which which felt very preacher to me i i really liked that line because it suggests that god is playing a very loose role in all of this and and really at the end of the day the the, the evil of lucifer and and characters like that are winning because they're actually making an effort whereas it implies that god's just ambivalent to it all yeah, there's definitely an element of the comics where you sense Constantine's past is very crowded with pain and trauma. No matter how much you read, you always get a sense that there's much, much more that you don't know uh, and much, much more or many more experiences that he's had. And I think this film gets across that really well. Like, you know, there's a scene in his apartment where there's just gallons and gallons and gallons of holy water lining the walls mm. because he knows he's He's going to need it or just his adroitness with putting together that holy shotgun. Like he just kind of knows how to put together this ultimate weapon to go slay demons. There's uh, so many things that that the film does let the audience put together that I really appreciate. I I mean, there are parts where like the film um, tells too much instead of just showing the opening crawl is like Los Angeles, California. And then in the very next shot, an LA cab with very clearly written LA cab pulls into the shot. Like, okay, we get it. It's it's Los Angeles. You you didn't need to tell us twice within 10 seconds. Mm. But most of the time the film does a very good job of getting across the very difficult task of letting you know what's extraordinary to Constantine and what's mundane to Constantine. So while to you and me, an exorcism is, is an extraordinary event when it's an actual demon, to Constantine, that is a run-of-the-mill thing. But this demon that is possessing this woman, that is extraordinary. These demons attacking him, that is extraordinary. The, 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 the spear of destiny, that is extraordinary. So I think communicating that to the audience is something that the movie does really well yeah i think and and i think the 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 moments where the film goes into its mythology are some of the my favorite parts of it you know it's very sort of early to mid 2000s in terms of the cgi but i really enjoyed the designs of the demons and 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 how hell was just this literal hellhole, obviously, but it was just this like flaming over the top realm. The demons were freaky. It, was this film rated R? Because I mean, obviously Gabriel, you know, swears early on, and there's quite a lot of quite shocking um, visuals throughout the film. Was it rated R when it released? I'm not too sure. No, it was uh, rated PG-13 actually, which is okay. uh, kind of extraordinary for the time, you know, because. Mm. It, well, now you know you smoke one cigarette and you get um, you get an, an immediate R rating. But in this in this one, you know, no, no, nobody swears, nobody's naked. So okay, PG thirteen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sh- oh, shit. I'm sorry. Um, uh, no, it was rated R. Oh, it was rated R. 
Yeah. Interestingly enough, it, I'm trying to find what it was rated in Australia because often uh, an R rating in America is classed as an MA15 plus in Australia. So there's always these little, these, these strange little differences between what's what's rated what between um continents. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and Gabriel, you know, says fuck once and that's about it. There's not a whole lot of blood in the film. There's just a whole lot of... Mm-hmm that sort of black gunky sort of gore that that again that real griminess maybe and sometimes just like a bleak miserable worldview gets gets an r rating from the mpaa it's it's an incredibly hypocritical and inconsistent body here in america you know i don't know what it is you know in in australia or other parts of the world but it's it's a pretty heinous group in my opinion (laughs) I was sort of looking into the the background of the film. It was actually the directorial debut of Francis Lawrence, who um, you might be familiar with the the last three The Hunger Games films. He did I Am Legend and uh, I think most recently Red Sparrow. He might have had another film yeah. since then. But again, he 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 was one of those directors that made his starts in his that made his start in music videos and commercials, which I think you can kind of see in parts of this film, particularly in the use of some of the rock music that was very of the time, I think. Yeah, definitely. A perfect circle feature. Inside Papa Midnight's club, it's still kind of beholden to that late 90s creepy goth with a bunch of waifs delicately holding their drinks as they lick each other's faces. You know, it, <laughs> it looks it, it looks like it's from, you know, Blade 2 or, or something. So yeah, yeah, that's definitely from music video land. Yeah, I mean, I guess moments like that sort of age the film, but I think on the most part, it holds up quite well. I mean, 15 years isn't a long time, but given the technological leaps that have taken place in that 15 years, I think the film, it, it, it's, it hasn't aged too badly. Yeah, and, and I think um, one of the reasons uh, the film is, in a lot of ways, you know, timeless, it, it, uh, except in the bad CGI, is that I really do like Keanu Reeves's performance in this. I think he does nail Constantine's attitude and his worldview and his sort of aura. Um he he takes it seriously. Uh, uh, this is before, you know, the the memification of of Keanu. Um but obviously this is after the Matrix film so he is very much a global superstar. Um but there's there's moments that in the hands of another actor it just would come off as as cheesy or, you know, self-parody like one of my favorite moments in the film is when he sort of rolls up his sleeves and slams his forms together and says, into the light, I command thee. Mm. And, you know, he's this character. He's putting these tattoos together of his forms to, to make demons or, or, or his enemies come out. In this case, it's Gabriel. You can tell that this is a very serious moment for him um, because it, it seems like he's calling forth almost holy energies in this moment. And for a character who's spent the whole movie basically spitting in the name of God at every chance you can get for him to actually have to command those forces is almost distasteful but this is a moment that requires it, and i think keanu sells the seriousness of that moment yeah i think um he really strikes a nice balance between just complete asshole and someone you can actually root for because you know he's he's got moments where you know he's, he's the first time he and angel have a proper conversation and she comes to him wanting to you know do uh, get his help to figure out whether isabel actually killed herself 
And he, and he he responds with, what type of mental patient kills herself? That's just crazy. And he has this sort of snarky snideness about him. Like he's he's just got this little, like the corner of his mouth curls into a bit of a smile, but he's not quite despisable enough that it pulls you away from from rooting for him but he definitely has this this aspect to him that i think reeves really nails yeah it's it's hard to hate a guy who's funny one of my favorite like little bits and is when you know papa midnight is about it like puts him in the the chair uh in his <laughs> in his club and he, so he can you know have a psychic experience and he uh and constantly puts his feet in water and papa midnight approaches with like a broken light bulb that's buzzing with electricity and he says, are you ready? Not really. And then shock. Yeah. And just, just that, Yeah. And that moment is just like, there's not many actors that can get a laugh at that moment with two words, but uh, Keanu was one of those actors. Yeah. And it doesn't try and emphasize those moments. I think that that's actually quite smart directing. You know, yeah. it's, it's not forcing a laugh. It's just, it comes across as almost improvisational in a sense. One of the strangest scenes for me, I don't know how you feel about it, but it's a scene when he helps Angela see again and so she she gets submerged in the bath but just before that you know she takes her jacket off and she says do I need to take all of my clothes off and there's just this this really bizarre pause that I think is meant to be played for a laugh it doesn't quite hold up today I think it it, it can definitely come across as a little bit creepy um considering you know where we're at as a society at the moment and <clears throat> that one scene sort of pulled me out of it a little bit maybe because i know what's coming next it, that that scene still works for me because i think if she's still able to trust him after that line you know he then basically drowns her in a tub after that so because she put her trust in him you know asking if she should take her clothes off he's then put it put in a position where he could murder her yeah, uh, and and so that I think that really sells the the trust that she has in him in order to put her put herself in that position. So so for me that that bit still works. Yeah, that that that's really well put, and and I think again it, it goes back to Reeves as a character and as as a as a personality himself, where you know when he breaks that silence, he again has a, one of those small little smiles and he goes oh no it's fine like like he's just yeah. messing with her and i think that it works and as with a lot of those little exchanges it works because reeves makes it work yes yeah so in the hand of an actor who might want to play up that that moment i i know keanu gets a lot of flack i think unfairly for being wooden i think uh, another actor might might mug for the camera in that scene and it would not play well and it would come off as too creepy yeah, I I, personally, I don't think Reeves is the kind of character, you, uh, sorry, the kind of actor that you could put into any old, any sort of role because I think he does have that reservedness that, that yeah. could, could well be intentional, but it means that he, he couldn't pull off any character. Like, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but there are things that he just wouldn't work in. And I think that that we can go back to the scene at the end with Stormari as Lucifer and I think that another part of that that really works is that Stormare, he has so much energy and he's so vicious and I think that that plays so well against Constantine and, and Reeves's, I guess for, use, for lack of a better word, woodenness. I think that there's that real contrast that works really well in that moment. And especially because you get this sense that Lucifer is really enjoying himself seeing this thorn in his side in such a vulnerable vulnerable position and you know constantine is having the life literally drained out of him 
So you're you're basically kind of geometrically increasing the disparity in in their energies uh, as Constantine's wrists are slit and he doesn't even have the dexterity to light a cigarette anymore because <laughs> the tendons are cut. It's uh, quite was, incredible that a scene yeah. like that is is in here. Again, as we keep saying it, it's it's only a fifteen year old movie, but I can't imagine, especially in a comic book movie, getting a scene where even though you don't see him actually cut the wrists but you hear it and it, it's, it's actually quite shocking to see that that existed in a film from 2005 that it, it just wouldn't now i don't think yeah as as grim and gritty as as Zack snyder likes to pretend his movies are nobody's slicing their wrists in his batman v superman you know what i mean no and i i honestly couldn't even imagine a scene like that in in joker is as violent and it, well as cynical as that film is I, I couldn't see someone self-harming or any you know comparable sort of visual like that couldn't imagine that showing up in a film like that and that's another thing that makes this film unique i think because it wasn't a financial failure but uh it, it just did not you know blow the doors off the box office and, and so it's something that that can exist on its own and in, in its own world and to be enjoyed uh, for its own merits yeah, it um had a look at this. It grossed two hundred thirty million, roughly um, worldwide, from a hundred million budget. So, it's a modest taking. Uh, apparently, since it came out, there has been sequel talk on and off over the years. I'd be very surprised if if a sequel ever got off the ground. I know that Reeves himself actually stated sometime last year that he'd be open to playing the character again, but it would be very surprising to see that happen. Yeah, and it's not like he is um hurting for work at this point he, no <laughs> yeah he could probably make john wick movies till the end of time and you know he's in the midst of a bill and ted movie he said he, he doesn't need to as much as i would love another uh, round at this at this character and may, maybe even more of uh, juman hansu's papa midnight I, I would think it's unlikely yeah what did you think of the directing itself i know we touched on a little bit i, I don't know how familiar you are with lawrence's work you know, I think that um, Hunger Game movies are fine, uh, but I I really like uh, the direction in this movie. I think there's so many little touches that I I really enjoy. Like there's a scene when uh, Constantine and Angela are walking through the streets, and you know the light is slowly going out, and the dark is enclosing in, in on them. And Constantine lights a rag and kind of blows the the demons away, and just the, the way that that scene builds just from a lack of light, and then kind of explodes. In, um, I think it's just so well done. And there's this great shot of Angela in a storefront window with a statue of Mary behind it. And she's like within the arms of Mary. And so she's centered being hugged from behind by, by Mary. And it's just framed so perfectly that it's not intentional for the character to be doing that, but you just notice she's just in this embrace of this holy figure behind her and i just think it's it's this moment that makes sense for los angeles because there's so many being a very catholic city uh, there's just so many images of mary all around it you could actually utilize that sort of overt catholicism in the architecture and, and to also get across the kind of person that angela is so i, I do really appreciate his direction in this film yeah, there's some really very, very on-the-nose visuals, but I think that they work. Like like the scene when Isabel throws herself off the roof and from memory, she's just she looks like the cross and the building I think that mm -hmm. she jumps from has a cross on it. It's it's certainly not subtle in any way, shape or form. Yeah, it, it just works in what they're going for, which is this. It's almost like they're not overthinking it. They, they don't 
they know what they want to do and they're not they're completely committing to it if you know what i mean yeah i think you know a lot of that kind of on the nose visuals comes from uh, the production design and the art direction which is done by uh, naomi shohan and david lazan respectively and so big shout out to them because there's so many like little details like all, all the little trinkets and Beeman's workshop or the design of that shotgun or the holy brass knuckles uh, <laughs> that, that are just so, so cool that I, mm. makes this movie level up in enjoyment for me. Yeah. There's a lot of that little intricate stuff, but then a lot of, of those things that just, that it just sort of leans into and you can really, you can really feel the action behind it. Like, like, like the brass knuckles, that Constantine uses to just beat the hell out of um, the Balthazar. demon. Yeah, the one that he beats the hell out of him with. Who I didn't much love that character. There's a scene early on in Papa Midnight's office where he sort of gets nice and close to Constantine's face and he uses a line, I think it's finger-licking good, and it, it sort of just makes me cringe to hear him say it. Like, it just doesn't work. Yeah, that's uh, Gavin Rossdale of 90s rock band Bush. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think yeah that is the... If I had to single out a character that I, or at least a performance that I would like to excise from that movie, it would be uh, that one. Yes, interesting. I, I saw that the film was going to be called Hellblazer, but it it, it would create confusion with the Clive Barker films. Um, well, Hellraiser, Hellblazer, I guess they're different. But I mean, I, I love. I would have loved the title of Hellblazer. I think that that is perfect, especially for the comic. <laughs> it makes Constantine almost sound like like this, like a monster um, living among monsters. What I found interesting was, and and we've touched on the fact that the the mythology had to be condensed, and for the most part, they condense it really well. One thing that that that, conf- that created a little bit of confusion with me was the idea that hell is below and heaven is above, and yet Constantine tells Angela that the 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 we or they exist in between the two realms and it suggests that it's almost like like a like a mirror like or like a wall that you tear down once you cross over and and you're in the same space and that created a just a little bit of confusion with me do do, do you feel that that line or that description was purely abstract or purely for him just to get the point across or do you think it does does he mean it more literally it seems like the architecture of this world is that there is a hell for almost every place that you are, which is why the hell in this movie looks like Los Angeles if it was being hit by a nuclear bomb. Mm. So it, I think it is both literal and metaphorical, <laughs> like a lot of the spirituality in this movie. Yeah. Usually what we do with, with new release films is we give them a verdict out of 10. And I don't particularly want to do that personally for Constantine, but I would love to get your rating out of 10 on Constantine. And along with that, I want you to tell me when you first saw it. Did you see it in theaters when it came out in 2005? And did it have the same impact? Uh, yes, I did see it in theaters. And I honestly don't remember if it had the same impact on me when I saw it then. I know I liked it very much. Um, but I've always been a big Keanu fan, uh, so I think that was it was an easier sell for me than I think a lot of people. But I think it's something that ha- has actually grown on me over the years, and as I've gotten older and as I've read more comics, I think I've just grown to appreciate it on its own. And so, and I think it, it's a movie that I, I think about a lot. That I, I you know, it's, especially when I'm thinking of ways to make a comic book movie or why I like certain comic book movies, and it's just an example I always kind of harken back to. 
Um, and so I'll probably give it a nine out of ten. Just like I enjoy the hell out of this movie. How, how does it stand up for you personally with those other films from from that period of time? So you know, Batman Begins and V for Vendetta. They both came out in the same year, I believe. So, so there are some really standout films from that period of time. It's not like it was you know decades ago. It's it's fairly recent history. Does it stand up to those other two? Uh, I think it does. Um, I think, uh, you know, V for Vendetta is an absolutely fascinating illustration of, of the merits of a book and a movie because I do like that film quite a bit, but I think the book is an absolute masterpiece. And so it, it, it's diff- it's one of those things that's difficult to translate totally. Uh, it's obviously more simplified because that's an incredibly complex book, like philosophically, politically, intellectually. Uh, it was turned into a pretty good action movie. But we also had, you know, we had Hellboy in 2004, which if anybody knows me, I could talk about Guillermo del Toro films for three hours at the drop of a hat. So, so yeah, this is actually, I think, a pretty fascinating time for comic book films because I think, you know, people were just trying things and then seeing what worked. You know, it was before uh, the first Iron Man, and so all we really had was the dreams of studios into making another Batman franchise. But I think uh, Constantine holds up really well in in that era. Have you seen any of the more recent Vertigo TV shows? So we've talked about the ones that are in development, but um, I think Preacher recently finished up. I haven't seen the whole thing. I think Lucifer has finished as well. Have you seen any of those two shows? And I think that when compared to those shows, I've seen bits and pieces of Lucifer and I've seen probably 75% of Preacher. And I think that especially with Preacher, while I, I found it fun, I found that it missed the point a little bit. It almost... it it doesn't feel authentic to what it's trying to adapt. And again, I'm not someone who thinks that an adaptation should stay 100% true to its source material, but I think that any adaptation owes something to what it's drawing its, its content from. And I think that those shows somewhat miss the mark. Yeah. uh, uh, Lucifer is almost as far from the comic as any adaptation can be. It bears almost no resemblance to uh, the source material other than the character names and the basic premise of Lucifer being in Los Angeles um, instead of hell. Preacher does take a lot from the source material, but it feels so different. Yeah. Um, because every issue of Preacher, something batshit crazy and gut wrenchingly sacrilegious would happen. <laughs> and I just find so, I just found so much of the show like dull. And mm. if, if one thing you can say about the, the Garth Ennis run on Preacher, that it was not dull. And I, so I think that makes the show pretty unsatisfying. Um, but I, I think uh, the DC streaming show uh, Doom Patrol was an absolute slam dunk in terms of a comic book adaptation. You know, it was weird and meta and great character developments and totally outside of the box of of other superhero shows and other superhero media. And so uh, that's something I think really uh, kept the Vertigo voice going pretty well. Definitely. I mean, and yeah, on on that, probably the worst mistake you can make for an adaptation like preacher is to have it be dull it's 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 a single thing you want to avoid on on lucifer 
you just sort of cast my mind to a dream dream release, which would be that while I don't particularly feel any desire or need to have seen a future Constantine sequel, to have had a, a Peter Stormware um, Lucifer film would have been very satisfying. That would have been amazing. I'm, I don't know how far you can take that character. Like, could you have him in a as a lead in like a network drama for twenty episodes a season? I don't know, but maybe like a like an HBO miniseries would be uh, fantastic. Have you read um, the 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 comic series Lucifer from the nineties? Was it nineties or two uh, thousands? Uh, uh, it was the nineties when it's it's been canceled and and you know revived a few times but i've read like about the first third of it and it's it's excellent yeah it's very good yeah it it feels very much in line with sort of the sandman whilst while obviously being its own thing and i think that 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 can be said for a lot of those those books they they seem to have existed in the same realm but they had their own identities so man if if i if i could have i was born in 93 and if i could have been you know <laughs> a teenager or 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 a young adult in the 90s as those books were coming out on monthly basis as i would have <laughs> it's this really interesting time when you know if you say 90s comics to somebody you think of like hyper sexualized women and and men with cartoonish muscles and patches patches everywhere everywhere on on the costumes and or and the death of superman and you know the the glut of special covers but then off in this corner of the comic book universe there was vertigo putting out these like amazing stories some of the best literature of the era was going on. And I, I think it's great that we you know have that as comic book fans to help people discover for you know as long as i live yeah and i think that and i hate i hate the argument that maybe comics are a a lesser medium which which is a stigma that's that's i think been you know disappearing for for a while now albeit slowly but i think that that those these books that we're talking about they sort of transcend the tropes of the medium and maybe the the mainstream idea of what the medium actually is and i think that they're that they're, they're examples of really great literature in their own rights i can't think of a bad title that i've read out of the line of vertigo books that were coming out at the time i know that you said that vertigo which has been discontinued as of january which is quite bittersweet for myself and particularly I imagine for yourself you did mention that vertigo played a big role in your comic book reading earlier days yeah it was definitely something that kind of formulated my my taste as far as comic books go because I think um, I was introduced to Watchmen at 18 and I think right after that I I discovered Sandman and that just totally blew my mind uh, because it's definitely something that is in the same pantheon as Watchmen or, you know, or like Dark Knight Returns and sort of as revered uh, comic book um, titles, but it's also so literary and so idiosyncratic and it has so much of Neil Gaiman's voice in there. And I think it it is something much more optimistic than certainly Dark Knight Returns or, or Watchmen. And so that really appealed to me, you know, the, it's exploration of mythology, it's willingness to not have a main character because it's called Sandman, but the title character doesn't appear in a lot of the issues. And so it's, it's sheer audacity. It's sheer sense of adventure was always really exciting to me. Yeah. I mean, arguably he's really never the main character of his own story. (laughs) 
Um, obviously, yeah. he grows and he changes over time, but he grows and changes as a result of the journeys that the characters around him are taking. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, the humanity that, that he starts to value comes from the stories that we read about other people. So yeah, it's it's very subversive. It's interesting to me that a lot of these Vertigo series, they they really did begin life as DC Comics. So, you know, Saga of the Swamp Thing was a DC Comics title. Um, there was uh, Animal Man. There was V for Vendetta was a DC book beforehand before it got reprinted. So despite the fact that these are very mature mature titles it took them existing for there to be a mature readers imprint to be made like if you you would obviously remember the first arc of sandman had a lot of those characters showing up you know arkham asylum features early on uh, constantine has a whole issue with the sandman uh yeah, yeah there's a there's like a, a crisis on infinite earth thing in in swamp thing and, and there's there's a, an arc in swamp thing where he kind of takes over the earth and the justice league has to stop him so yeah there's there are moments when the regular dc universe sort of infiltrates into the vertical world yeah i really appreciate that it sort of deviates itself and without even without ever suggesting that it doesn't exist alongside those. Once they become Vertigo books, they are Vertigo books. They sort of stop tying into that. Hellblazer might be a bit different. That was a 300-issue book. I think it ran from like 88 or something to not too long ago, maybe 2013 before it got rebooted as something else entirely. So that that, that that's a bit of a different example and was easily the longest-running Vertigo book of all of them. Yeah, especially because Constantine, you know, appeared in like Justice League Dark and, and other more mainstream books as a as a secondary character. Have you read much of Justice League Dark? I read its run in New 52 and then the first 10 or so issues of the Rebirth era. And it's always something that I love in concept, but the execution just uh, never holds up, at least for me, unfortunately. Do you just think the character himself doesn't work in a like a team book setting or do you think it's something more than that i think it's something more than that because i, I think he can work in a team setting because he definitely teams up with characters in his solo series mm. it's just that the, the justice league dark books i don't think frankly are willing to go dark enough they're not willing to explore the, the same issues that the regular hellblazer title is because frankly the the rebirth just the dark series were just like a, a team book with wonder woman in it and 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 that's fine but just you know don't 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 tell me it's a dark supernatural title yeah and because i i love a lot of the cast of those books like i love dead man i i wish dead man was around more it just never lives up to its potential and madam xanadu got like so many cool characters in that series that just aren't utilized to their fullest extent yeah, it feels like there's there's like been this just progressive uh, almost toning down of some of these really sort of much darker sort of characters over the years. And that's not just in DC books, but in Vertigo as well, you know, leading up to its closure. But it's almost like Vertigo itself started on such a high that it, it couldn't be sustained. Like the, the quality was so high from day one that, that there really is only one way and that's that's sort of down unfortunately i mean there are there are, there are great vertigo books from the 2000s you know um as we mentioned you know, there's why the last man the sweet tooth i don't know if you've read uh scott snyder's american vampire i've read parts of that and that's quite good as yeah, well Yeah, american vampire is great yeah 
Um, there was Fables as well, which which was almost Vertigo's answer to Sandman in that it, it spawned a whole bunch of spinoffs. And again, Fables is something I read up until the, uh, the there was a this was years ago now, but there, there was a major war about at the midpoint of the entire series. And I read up to that point and, and I sort of fell off after that was resolved. It sort of felt like a natural ending, I guess. Did you ever read through to the end of that one? Uh, yeah, I, I did read read the end. Um, I and I've read a couple of these spinoff graphic novels. Um, and it's all good. Um, I would say everything. There's stuff that's like absolutely amazing in in Fables. That that is just one of the great series of all time, in my opinion. After the great Fables crossover, uh, where it crossed over with the Jack of Fables series, which I did not like. Mm-hmm. Um, it it does take a dip in quality because uh, Jack is a he's a shitty character. <laughs> like it, it's just one of those characters that you don't like spending time with because he always makes everyone else's lives miserable, and so it's just not fun to read that character, especially when characters you like go into his world and you see them get shat upon. It's just not fun. He's definitely a, a less is more type of character. Like <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know that they, they tried to revamp Vertigo in a big way two years ago or something like that. They rebooted a line of Sandman stories, and I never actually read a lot of I was interested in a lot of, of, a lot of those. They let, There was a title, The Dreaming. There was a new Lucifer series. I think there was a new Constantine series at the time, but perhaps they, they just didn't take off the way that the publisher hoped. Perhaps it was sort of that, that kind of last-ditch effort to keep the doors open in a way. Um, I did really like The Dreaming at least initially, but it just got too convoluted and, and sort of obsessed with its own mythology to really mean anything. And, and unfortunately, I, I kind of felt the same way about the, the other series. I know that there are a lot of fans of House of Whispers, and, and that series is really interesting in how it approaches voodoo, which is sort of a, a magical realm that Constantinus and Sandman uh, haven't really been privy to in, in in the comics. Obviously, Papa Midnight is a voodoo adept character, but I think the way House of Whispers approaches the that art is much more uh, genuine. It does have that going for it, but the, the Lucifer series was was not great. It was pr- pretty messy. Mm. So it, yeah, it is uh, unfortunate to have seen Vertigo go out with with a whimper. Yeah, and and I guess they they have to my knowledge they've transitioned some of those titles and sort of pulled it all into the dc black label line which what are your thoughts on that because a lot of that seems to just be an excuse to create mature age books but base them on on the superheroes of of dc proper and it seems like it's sort of not what a lot of people who loved vertigo for what it was kind of would have wanted out of a new mature ages label yeah, it, it is frustrating because it does have a bit of like an edgelord quality to it. Like, uh, we're going to get into the gritty origin stories of Harley Quinn. Uh, yeah. <laughs> look at her in, in, with very little clothing in the same cell as the Joker. Isn't it sexy? Uh, it's mm. like, well, no, it's not. Um, <laughs> but I do like that DC is able to tell stories that about its major characters that aren't canon. Yeah. Because DC has a really ridiculous relationship to canon that I find exceedingly frustrating because throughout the entire run of Tom King's Batman, which I think is brilliant, it was clear the character in Tom King's Batman was not the same character that was in Detective Comics and that was not the same character that was in the Justice League. But we all had to pretend that it was the same character and it was all happening to the same guy. 
Mm. And that's ridiculous. But with the DC black label books, at least like, okay, we're acknowledging this doesn't exist. It's, it's not the same as the main Batman book. So enjoy Batman damned for what it is as a standalone story. And so in that way, I appreciate the black label. Yeah. I mean, I've never been, and perhaps it's evidence of just the fact that I was sort of late to comics i didn't read it in my childhood so i think i came to them at the age of maybe 18 so canon in terms of every book tying into one another and existing in the same universe it's never been the priority for me in terms of reading comics i've just wanted good books so when books do tie in but it creates a bit of confusion and stops feeling realistic in that sense is when i get pulled out of it so i definitely agree that when it comes to the the line of books where you know canon doesn't matter or chronology doesn't matter i think that that opens things up to some really unique storytelling that probably just doesn't really exist in other formats i funnily enough i got into dc proper pretty much at the birth of the new, the very controversial new 52 line. So it was like a starting from DC's own sort of day one sort of approach where they wanted to start things all over again for the first time ever, I believe. But that very, that line very, very quickly contradicted itself at every single turn. Yeah. There was a lot of really good stuff in the new 52. Like Scott Snyder's Swamp Thing was great. Uh, Jeff Lemire's Animal Man hmm. was great. The first story arc of Scott Snyder's Batman, the Court of Owls stuff. That was cool. I really loved Jeff Johns' Aquaman. That oh, was, that was brilliant. great. Um, yeah. But yeah, a lot of stuff, like, we're supposed to believe it, it. they're starting from zero, but, like, Nightwing is already an adult, and Batman is supposed to be, like, 25 or something. Mm. Like, yeah, a lot of the stuff. Yeah, so DC gets in its own way quite often. It, it's great that it's able to not be so precious with its uh, characters as far as the, the Black Label stuff goes. Yeah, if, if anybody is interested in a great Black Label title, uh, One Roman Dead Earth by Daniel Warren Johnson is amazing. It's like if One Roman was in Mad Max and it's the art is absolutely fantastic um, and he has a really visceral way of of telling stories like he was doing some great stuff for image for a couple years and so to see him take on a superhero book is really exciting yeah i find it it's a bit of a bit of a tug of war for me because as you say it's really good that the creators get to tell stories about the about these these very famous characters in in ways that you just can't in continuity tied titles but yet to lose that aspect where creators were just given the ability to create completely new concepts is is disappointing at the same time you've got you've, you know you've got publishers like image that that you can go to for for original content you know people like rick remender have have gotten away from marvel and dc to to tell stories that that are wholly original so something like brian Cavorn's why the last man which was a vertigo series might still have been made today it just may have been made at a different publisher i would think it would be at image uh if anything yeah mm -hmm. um but that sort of like give and take i think is what is the the, the simultaneously exciting and disappointing aspect is what disappoints me frequently about the DC animated universe. Kind of the impetus for this whole conversation was the recent Apocalypse War movie from the DC animated universe. And it takes risks with its characters, but those risks only go so far as uh, let's kill Barbara Gordon on screen. And it's not a spoiler because she's one of like a thousand deaths that mean nothing in that movie. Right. And 
yeah, it's an excuse to have some cool fight choreography with characters that, you know, don't get to be at risk that often. And, but you know, the animation is just like not exciting. It's just shot in a very mediocre way. It's just very plain and unexciting. And so for, for some that's supposed to be so visceral and R rated, it's, it's just very dull. And, you know, like we talked about before, the last thing you want in a sort of rule breaking movie is for it to be boring. Yeah, and have you been have have you kept up with those DC animated movies, or or have you sort of was this the first one in a while that you'd seen? I did see the Death of Superman one, and I like that one a lot actually because I think the Death of Superman story is so bloated in comic book form that to see it distilled down into a ninety minute movie is a really good illustration of what you can what you can gain by cutting things. Yeah, but then there's things that like the the Killing Joke movie was abominable like that was awful so so the dc animated movies are pretty hit or miss for me i think i i I, yeah i reviewed death of superman when it came out and i found that with such a simple story like with such a condensed storyline again as as with constantine that condensing of of a famous story or character i think for death of superman it worked really well because i could get to the heart of superman and tell a really character driven tale that while obviously it's it's like 80 percent action you actually gave a shit about the character yeah. which just wouldn't happen if you if you filled it with as much as it sounds like um apocalypse war was filled with and then yet with um you know the killing joke i do own that and if if i was going to watch it i ju- i just skip the entire first what first third of it and and watch the part that's very true to the to the original yeah. comic because i do think that that, that 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 latter part of that adaptation has merit purely because I enjoy this, the visuals and I enjoy how accurate it is. But again, just read the comic at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, did you re- did you see the Dark Knight Returns adaptation, the two-parter? Because that one I thought was absolutely how to adapt these um, these really classic comics into animated form. I did I did like that, but again, I just think so much of that Dark Knight Returns story is sort of tied to Frank Miller and and you know his his visual language and and, and his partnership with Klaus Janssen. So I it, it just struck me as fine. Yeah. Um, if somebody really enjoys that version of the Dark Knight Returns, I have nothing against them. I I wish them well. It's just not something that that stuck in my mind as something all all that memorable. I guess it's that um. It's the debate between, and and it probably says a lot about modern entertainment consumption, is that reading books and reading comics, they're a more active, you know, way of engaging with a story. So you're, it probably takes a bit more energy, as, as funny as that sounds. But to watch a movie, you know, you don't really have to do much. But to read something, you know, you're, you're actively involved in the passage of time in that story, um, particularly in comics where the space between panels is just as important as, as the dialogue. So I think for, for a lot of people, and especially people who, who aren't interested in comics to begin with, it, watching an adaptation is a far more um, enticing prospect than going and finding the book. Yeah, and I think especially something like, say, V for Vendetta, where the original material might be so dense and intimidating you know, a lot of people just don't read comics for that reason. They, they read it to see Superman punch the bad guy. And so maybe introducing them to the adaptation first might give them a window into enjoying something as cerebral as V for Vendetta can be. 
I think so. And I think that you can lose a lot of the subtext that a lot of people probably don't think exists in a lot of comics, but there's there's so much under the hood of, of, of a lot of these books, especially the classics that we're, we're going over and over about, that you lose when, when they're tra- transitioned into the screen. Because I guess in worst case scenarios, people who are adapting films for TV, uh, sorry, adapting comics for TV and movies are probably missing the point at times of why certain stories are so beloved. So yeah, you're going to get a more action-oriented adaptation of V for Vendetta because A, it's got a, a name that's going to, got a title that's going to appeal to people who have read the book, but it's also got a more of a mass appeal that's going to get people into seats. And then there's something like the recent uh, HBO Watchmen series, which blew my mind as to how good it was. It, it had no reason to be as just knockdown, drag out, outstanding. And I think it did itself a service by saying, okay, we're going to set this 30 years after the comic book. Then you know it's going to take place in the same world, but we're going to be playing by our own rules here. And I think it's something that exists on its own that draw strength from the original material but can also live separate from it i yeah i have to admit i haven't actually seen it yet i've been i it's it's certainly on my watch list but it's another example of of maybe how to create an adaptation right in that don't just copy things word for word or line for line even if fans of original material seem to want that a lot of the time do something original do something different make it justify the point of creating something based on something that people already love otherwise yeah at the end of the day there's you you're just moving one thing to another from one medium to another and 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 it's it has diminishing returns in my opinion yeah and another reason why i i love for example uh logan um because it took elements from a lot of wolverine stories you know most notably probably old man logan but i think that was a lot of in, in like the very basic story structure and, and visual aesthetic otherwise it was a pretty much an original tale built on the fact that hugh jackman is really good at being wolverine and patrick stewart is really good at being charles xavier and it it played to its own strengths and let itself tell this really heart-wrenching story about these characters you know it was a, a, a as fitting an end to you know a a big time big budget franchise as i can ever want yeah and i guess a similar thing can be said for joker in that you know maybe it's not that accurate or true to the the character himself but it does something with it it takes a character and it and it infuses it with a a new perspective and i don't think that that film in particular i didn't have as good a time with it when i watched it a second time i absolutely loved it in theaters and the second time it sort of it 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 lost a lot of its punch for me as controversial as it is you can't deny that it does something different with the character and and that's kind of what you want You, you you don't want the same things over and over again you don't you know, you, you didn't just want a Heath Ledger Joker 2.0 the same way that you didn't want Heath Ledger's Joker to just be a live action rendition of the Mark Hamill Joker from the animated series. Yeah. The reason, you know, these famous performances, these famous portrayals stand up and continue to be talked about is because they do something different and they pull it off. Yeah, I know comic books had to fight against the uh, the image of Adam West as Batman for a long time, but that's something that that I love, and it's it's great that I can laugh at the Adam West Batman this in the same way that you know, like a seven year old today can still laugh at the the Adam West Batman, and and I think the fact that we can have 
Frank Miller's Batman and Adam West's Batman and coming up Robert Pattinson's Batman, I think is speaks to the beauty and the flexibility of comics. And so I, I uh, that's part of why I love them, that, that I can enjoy so many versions of these mythic tales uh, that they can change and be different for different people. Yeah. And I mean, to take it full circle, it sounds like that we can, we can draw a parallel to how you feel about Constantine, which again, as we've said over and over again, it's quite a stark departure from the character from the comics, but that's part of the fun, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's what we can get out of it. Um, it doesn't have to be true to, to every facet of the character. It just has to at least embody the spirit and, you know, reflect a vision from someone who who respects that that spirit and any movie where keanu reeves kills demons with a golden sanctified shotgun i'm into it (laughs) (laughs) absolutely i think that that's probably going to bring us to an end here this has been an absolute pleasure talking shop about comics and constantine and vertigo um, I could talk for days about this topic and hopefully we get a chance to in the near future. John, it's been a blast. Thank you for joining us. Now, for our listeners, I'm going to get you to do it again. Let us know where we can find you if we want to hit you up for a chat. First, uh, I want to thank you for having this conversation with me. It was an absolute blast. Uh, thank you. I really hope we can do this again. I am at Quasar Sniffer on Twitter and Instagram. I work at Comics Connection, that's comics with an X, uh, in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. So if you ever want to get a great local comic shop experience, that's us. Uh, We are on Facebook and at comicsconnection.com. Brilliant. Myself, you can find on Twitter and Facebook at Hayden Spiral. Nothing too original or interesting about that tagline. Um, But if you want to find the team at Film89. Um, we're on Twitter and Facebook at film89.co.uk. Thank you all for listening. I hope you've had a blast as we have. We will see you next time. In the meantime, stay safe. Mm-hmm.